Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a bloke named Johann Friedrich Streuensee. And uh, whatever you want to say about my French pronunciation or my bloody anything other than German, don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about that. Better at German than I'm in English when it comes to pronunciation. That's an easy, easy game here. So uh, anyway, Streuensee. We'll probably stick with Streuensee because otherwise I'm going to sound like a pretentious idiot. So Streuensee, right? He's a uh, he's this bloke who in the late 18th century, he managed to, uh, to more or less become the de facto ruler of the Kingdom of Denmark. And how did he do this? You may ask, being of common blood, he's not a, not a royal, not a noble, nothing of that kind. You'll be amazed to learn that he did it by, in all seriousness, sleeping his way to the top. That's right. We've all heard of this sort of thing, right? We've all heard of, you know, people willing to do whatever it takes to advance their career. But you wouldn't think it would turn you into the uh, sort of, you know, more or less the regent of a European kingdom. But that's what happened here for Stroyanzi, our mate here. It is an accurate, if somewhat selective summary of what this bloke managed to do, as there are a couple of other things going on for him, uh, you know, outside of that, that ultimately ended up with him taking control of Denmark. And that's exactly what we're going to get across today. All thanks to, once again, she's done it again, two in a row, bloody legend, Birke Urnschleer. She's, uh, well, still can't really say her name, but thanks so much, all the same, Birka, mate. Sorry about the mispronunciation. Danish, a lot harder, a lot harder than German. At least in German, all the letters actually, you know, do what they say on the tin. Anyway, Birka got in touch with a bunch of different suggestions. Norwegian heavy heavy, sabotage, uh, heavy water sabotage from last week, of course, and uh, this bloke this week, plenty of others. And so maybe, maybe this will just turn into the Birka show. I don't know. We'll see how we go. But this week, this story, too good to pass up. Um, and uh, so I suppose, you know, apologies to all the other listeners whose uh, suggestions are being eclipsed by the uh, by the premium top-shelf Burke uh, offerings. Uh, sorry, everyone. I'll, I'll get around to them at some point. Anyway, this bloke, Johann Friedrich Streunzee, right? He was a doctor, and he rose through the ranks to become the King of Denmark's personal physician. And from there, he pivoted marvellously to basically supplant the king and take control of the country. And I'll tell you this, he did a, did a bloody good job of things too, I reckon, once he was in the top job, but we'll get across that a bit later. And of course, we'll get across his rather grisly end. I don't want to spoil it, but there is a good bit of horrible murder this week. Don't worry about that. But before all this, we've actually got to talk about the king himself, and then we'll bring in our mate uh, Stroenzi a little bit later on. So let's get underway. We're going all the way back to 1749 here to the 29th of January, when Christian the seventh of Denmark is born. He is born as the son of Frederick V. Since 1513, every single king of Denmark has been called either Christian or Frederick, and alternating, uh, they, they sort of take it in turns. And we had this great big bloody long line of Christian Frederick, Christian Frederick, until 1972 when, uh, when Queen uh, Margareta II took the throne. But interestingly, she counted herself as a Christian and so called her son, Frederick. Her dad had been called Frederick. She counted herself as a, as, as a Christian. Then her son's Frederick. So keeping the pattern going, every second one's still going to be a Frederick. Uh, her son, by the way, Crown, uh, Crown Prince Frederick, is someone you may have heard of, especially if you're an Australian. He's the one that met Mary Donaldson in a pub in Sydney uh, in 2000 at the Olympics and, and bloody married her. So the next queen of Denmark is going to be an Australian. Good on you, Mary. I mean, you know, monarchies are ob- obviously obsolete and unnecessary, but still, you always want to see another Australian come good like that. So good on you, Mary. Very, uh, you know, good on you. you, you you've done, you've done what you, you've come good, eh? Anyway, back in 1749, young Christian is born. His mum sadly dies when he's, you know, three years old. So very, very young, young, young kid losing his mum. They're very tragic. Sad for anyone. 
Uh, but his dad remarries, this time to a woman named Juliana Maria of Brunswick-Wolfenbüttel. Uh, remember her name, because she's going to come up again a bit later on. But anyway, in 1766, at the age of 16, he becomes Christian VII of Denmark when his dad, Frederick V, dies. Now, this your poor young bloke, he wasn't the most stable fella. He um, he may have had schizophrenia. Uh, he may he had a couple of different mental health issues for sure. These days, we tend to think he was schizophrenic. He definitely had trouble conducting himself as you might expect a king, a king to, you know, regardless of uh, of what was going on with him. There, he was unable to control his emotions and his impulses. He had, you know, he had his mental health issues made it more or less impossible for him to govern. And you know, he'd do some of the most ridiculous things. He'd play leapfrog over the backs of dignitaries as they bowed to him. He'd cut about Copenhagen at night with a gang and try to beat people up with a spiked club. He would slap visiting diplomat diplomats about the face if they said things he didn't like and uh, he'd throw furniture out the palace windows one time he even put pins in the cushions of his grandma's seat and he also had a very unfortunate habit this young bloke of uh, of cranking down more or less anywhere and everywhere which again isn't isn't the most seemly thing for a king well isn't the most seemly thing for anyone to do really and you know not the public mate no one wants to see that do it behind closed doors you know keep, keep that sort of stuff to yourself anyway look we're not going to be too hard on this poor fella suffering as he did from these mental health issues, but it's clear it's clear to say, very fair, fair observation to say, that he wasn't fit to rule in the state that he was in there. So the laws that oversaw Danish royalty, however, they had no mechanism, no, they didn't have any kind of mechanism to deal with a mentally ill monarch. And so his counsellors, his advisors, his ministers, they all just do their best to govern on his behalf while he's, you know, sort of... Uh, struggling, you know, with with these uh, various mental health issues. Uh, They organised a a marriage for him to his 15-year-old cousin, Princess Caroline Matilda, who was the, uh, you know, as you do, your cousin, no worries, uh, who was the sister of George III of the United Kingdom. Actually, sorry, no, he wasn't technically uh, George III of the United Kingdom yet. He would become that in 1801. At this point, he was the King of Britain and Great Ireland at this point, but whatever, that's by the by. Any case, as I say, Christian VII, he married his cousin, as you do, uh, and it's safe to say that the marriage was... um, Look, well, you know, not a particularly happy one, to put it mildly here. By all accounts, Christian didn't like Caroline Matilda at all. And uh, and after putting off consummating the marriage for as long as possible, he finally got it over with and then get, uh, went back to, uh, to completely ignoring her. Now, look, he was not a very happy bloke at all. And his ministers were looking for any and every possible way to treat his illness. And this is where our mate Johann Friedrich Streunsee comes in, right? Because... Streunzi ends up playing uh, an enormously, a, a pivotal role in uh, in the king's life. Uh, so let, let's jump back a couple of years and have a chat about sort of how he gets to to where he is when he comes into the story of Christian uh, the seventh year. So Streunzi was born in 1737 on the 5th of August. He's a little older than Christian. He's uh, 12 or so, or so years old. He was born in Prussia as the son of a theologian. And he studied at the University of Halle, where he became very interested in enlightenment ideals. You know, reason, progress, liberty, constitutional government, separation of church and state, all that sort of thing. Absolutely bloody brilliant. Love all that. And um, when he was a bit older, in his 20s, he moved to Altona, uh, which at the time was part of Denmark, a town just on the outsides of Hamburg. Hamburg at that point was its own sovereign city-state. It was a bit like Singapore uh, is today. But it was surrounded by Danish territory there to the north and uh, and to the, to the to the well I guess the northwest where Altona is anyway. So Schweinzi lives in Altona for uh, for ten years. He had a great time. He worked as a doctor and after I mean I guess I guess it originally kind of struggled a little bit to uh, to make ends meet, make enough cash for a while there. But eventually he settled into a very comfortable lifestyle. He wrote extensively, mainly uh, Enlightenment philosophy, and he made friends with some aristocrats who used to be part of the royal court in Copenhagen. 
Now, the royal court had done its best to hide Christian's mental illness from the public, and most people didn't know of his condition. But all the same, in 1768, two years into Christian's monarchy, his court was looking for some physicians to accompany him on a tour of some of the other European courts. They wanted to make sure that this bloke was going to be looked after, keep his outbursts to a minimum, make sure that he, you know, he more or less behaved himself while he was off representing uh, the Kingdom of Denmark uh, you know, around the traps here. So... Stroinzi's mates, they recommend him for the job as a doctor, you know, as someone with a little bit of medical experience here like that. They recommend him for this job, and luckily enough, he gets it. So in April uh, 1768, sure enough, he's appointed as one of the physicians of uh, of the king. And on the 6th of May in 1768, Stroinzi, he sets off as part of Christian VII's entourage as he cuts about Europe. And over the next eight months, they visit Britain, France, the Netherlands, various courts in Western Germany, and uh, and Christian's ministers, they cannot believe their luck because Stroinzi is bloody excellent at his job. He seemed to have had a very, very positive influence on the king indeed. He was calmer and more collected, and as they put it, he caused fewer embarrassing scenes. And obviously, you know, when you're trying to manage someone like that in very high, uh, you know, high important situations like that with other other monarchs, other dignitaries, whatever else like that, very important, of course, to uh, uh, to represent the, uh, the, court, the Royal Court of Denmark in a, in a favourable light. And the tour, as a result, was much more successful than they had ever hoped it could possibly be. So, when they arrive back in Copenhagen in January 1769, Stroinzi is immediately offered a job as Christian's personal physician, which, of course, he accepts. He's bloody good at this job, and this is going to be a huge leg up for him entering you know, into, the, into the, the royal courts, the world of the aristocracy, all that sort of stuff. Our boy, he's really come up. With this position, it uh, there came the honorary title of a state councillor and a position at court, not to mention, of course, direct access to the literal king of Denmark. So, Nice one there, Johan. You've really done uh, done yourself proud. And I will tell you this, Stroinzi did not waste the hand he'd been dealt, not at all. He very quickly moved to solidify his position, not just as a member of the king's personal entourage, but also as a courtier. And, you know, his political position within the court, the Royal Danish court, he, he moved to very much cement his, uh, and, uh, you know, make sure that he had a, a good foundational base when it came to uh, the, uh, the, the, the continued verticality of his career because that's what he's very ambitious very ambitious by the sound of things throughout 17 uh, 1769 he cemented himself as uh, as a trusted associate trusted ally of the king and eventually he was promoted to cabinet secretary to the king himself which means he had access to all the inner workings of the government all the paperwork you know all the correspondence everything that needed to be put in front of the king Stroinzi was the man who did it he was doing an incredible job in securing a position of great favor and influence with christian but he didn't stop there, I can tell you that. Not only was he looking after the health and well-being of the king, he also, of course, was responsible for the king's family. And in October 1769, Caroline Matilda, the king's wife, the queen, she fell ill. And she needed the attention of the royal physician, which, of course, Struensee duly provided. But he ended up providing her with a lot more than that, I can tell you. Because poor old Caroline Matilda, as, I, you know, as I'd mentioned... She'd been more or less completely cast off and cast off, you know, and ignored by her husband. There, uh, the king had gotten her pregnant, you know, hit it and quit it, uh, and then went back to uh, behaving like she didn't exist. He's going off rooting, you know, other birds, courtesans, all the, all the works, just sort of absolutely, you know, he's going about town like a mad thing. So Caroline Matilda, poor, you know, poor woman. She's there. She's lonely, miserable. She's miles away from her native Britain. She's got no mates, no friends. She wasn't allowed to bring any of her, uh, her personal entourage, any of her, any of her chambermaids or ladies in waiting over with her. So she's absolutely hating life. Now, perhaps Stroinzi may have just seen her as another way to gain further political power to begin with, right? But after a while, for whatever the reason, he did whatever he could 
to uh, to get on side with the young queen in a, in a major way. Now, this wasn't an easy task. Again, to begin with, she didn't like Struensy at all. But uh, you know, he was kind. He was sympathetic. He listened to. He was a he was a shoulder to cry on. And he did what he could to make her feel less lonely, less miserable, and she ends up warming up to him. Now, look, you know, this isn't a romance novel. I don't have to draw it out, and I don't have to ratchet up the tension, sort of turn this big, you know, into a, into, into a whole soap opera. So I can just sort of, you know, bugger it. I can skip straight to the good stuff before long. Struensy and, 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 and Caroline Matilda, they're rooting. Yeah, they're hopping into bed with each other, and they begin an affair. They begin an affair in early 1770. Now, you would think... This would be an incredibly dangerous thing to do. People have had their head chops, uh, heads chopped off for less, uh, you know, cook-holding not only your boss, but also the bloody king of Denmark, mate. But weirdly, the king didn't seem to care at all. He was a big fan of Struensy, as we talked about. He was, so, he, he was just he was supremely indifferent about his wife as well. And so the affair just didn't seem to register, register or even bother him, you know, even in the slightest, which is a pretty good thing for both Struensy and and Caroline Matilda, because she's going around flaunting the fact that she's rooting Struensy to the whole world. She's chatting to her chambermaids about it. She openly had Struensy come and come to her rooms in the palace there like that. You know, she's showing off the rumpled clothing that they were wearing, all that sort of stuff. And you just dance with, they dance with each other openly in front of everyone at balls for the entire evening. They'd be together there like that. So, the king, even if he's, you know, supremely indifferent, as I say to all of this, even if he doesn't care about it, I'll tell you what, other courtiers certainly did. They felt like they, they felt like this, uh, you know, th- this young German upstart who's coming out here out of nowhere is making a mockery of the uh, of the Danish royalty, the House of Oldenburg, this revered uh, royal house that uh, has ruled Denmark for so long. And uh, he made a fair few enemies by cutting the king's lunch. I can tell you that a lot of these people, uh, you know, they've been part of the Danish court since before he'd arrived. And, and they didn't like this new sort of balance of power. They didn't like the way the king was falling under this bloke's influence. They especially didn't like the fact that he was rooting the queen. But Stroensi's power and influence in the royal court, it only grew. It grew and grew and grew here. The king loved Stroensy because he looked after and took care of him. And the queen also loved Stroensy because he, well, you know, looked after and took care of her, although in a, an entirely different fashion, you would have thought. And so towards the end of 1770, Stroensy's influence over uh, Christian the uh, Christian the Seventh it resulted in real concrete steps being taken to consolidate his power at court. He advised the king to fire the count, you know, fire this council here or remove that minister there, and slowly and surely paved a way to build up his own power as one of the the closest, most trusted allies of the king himself. You know, getting rid of all these other rivals, these opponents, anyone who might stand in his in his way, and this coincided with a time when Christian's tenuous grip on reality was only getting worse and worse and worse until he was more or less at a point where you know he'd sort of just descend into these torpors, right? And he'd sign anything that uh, that Strunzi put in front of him. And this all finally came to a head on the 18th of December, 1770, when Strenzi appointed himself Minister of the Privy Council, which well and truly solidified his position of near absolute power. And he wielded this absolute power very freely indeed. He dismissed department heads, rivals, foes, anyone who threatened to stand in his way, and then used the Privy Council to rule Denmark more or less absolutely. Because, as I say, Denmark at this uh, at this point in its history, it wasn't a constitutional monarchy as it is today. It was absolutist. The king had absolute power, and Struensee more or less controlled the king to the point where he was sleeping with his wife and so absolutely, absolute power was more or less, you know, entirely invested in Struensy at this point. So 
His rise was complete. He had control of an entire country. He had the kingdom at his fingertips, the powerless King Christian VII under his thumb. So what did he do with such power? How did he make his mark on the history of the world as the de facto ruler of a powerful European nation? What legacy did Struensee leave for himself after having slept his way to the top? From the end of 1770 onwards, Struensee exercised near absolute power over the entire kingdom of Denmark. And do you know what he did? Amazingly, incredibly. There was no oppression, there was no tyranny, there was nothing in the way of corruption or despotism or anything like that. You'll remember that Struensee was a dedicated follower of the Enlightenment, and he was well and truly guided by this Enlightenment thinking. It guided his actions while ruling Denmark as head of the king's cabinet. Here are some of the things that he did. This is a, this is a non-exhaustive list of some of the uh, some of the change, some of the reforms that Struensee put into place while he was, you know, the de facto, the regent of the Kingdom of Denmark. Check this out. He abolished slavery, abolished indentured servitude, forced labour of every kind was abolished by this bloke, uh, both within Denmark and throughout its colonies. He also abolished capital punishment for theft and torture as part of the criminal justice system and criminalised bribery and corruption. He reformed the Danish noble system. He banned nepotism, favoritism, all these uh, taxation laws that meant that the nobles and the, uh, the, the, you know, the wealthy elite had been getting away with stuff for years and years, their privileges they had. He even abolished many aristocratic titles altogether from the first place. Major shakeup of the Danish upper classes here. He reformed the justice system and the military. He fought corruption and the wastage of public funds in both of those areas. He also reformed uh, universities and hospitals. He diverted public funds to support these state-run institutions. He reformed and nationalised parts of the of the Danish agricultural sector. He established government stores of grains to offset variance in the grain price at market, make sure it was always affordable. And perhaps most importantly, when it came to him personally, to his career, he liberalised the press. He abolished state censorship of journalism and, and, and print media. And this had very powerful consequences for Stroenzi, as we'll come, uh, as we'll come to uh, in just a little bit here. We'll get across exactly what that meant for his career uh, very shortly. But think of this. This bloke had an entire kingdom under his control in the 18th century, and he used it to enact progressive, forward-thinking ideas that were well and truly ahead of their time. Denmark today is known for being this Scandinavian liberal paradise. Going there, visiting the country feels like you're, you're time traveling a couple of years into the future, to be honest. And this Danish liberalism obviously goes back a very bloody long way. They say that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but Struensee proved to us that this isn't always so. I mean, look, okay, let's be fair. The bloke was an adulterous manipulator, sure, but he knew a thing or two about political philosophy. That much is abundantly obvious. Unfortunately, however, he missed a couple of the lectures on political realism, it seemed, because he ended up being the architect of his own demise with many of these uh, these uh, reforms and the way that they were received. Initially, after his first, you know, he first ascended to power, public opinion was very much in his favour. He was seen as a positive influence on not only the king, you know, restoring the king to uh, to a level where he could, uh, you know, at least be a little more functional, a little, little happier, uh, but also the kingdom in general, especially amongst the middle classes, which benefited so strongly from uh, from his reforms. These Enlightenment ideals today that we take for granted, the ideals that spurred the French and the American revolutions, you know, they, they were just that at this time. They were revolutionary. And while Struensee's Enlightenment thinking brought him a great favour to begin with, unfortunately for him, 
it didn't last. I mentioned before that he was the architect of his own downfall, and he certainly was. Thanks to his decision, more than anything else, his decision to uh, liberalise the press, establish a free press uncensored by the palace, this was eventually the, uh, the petard upon which he was hoisted. Because it resulted in two things. One was very funny, and the other to be honest, was was not. Uh, number one, the funny one first, was, uh, well, well, more or less exactly what you would expect from a, a certain kind of person. Uh, you know, the kind of person who would do this once. Once they found out they could print whatever they wanted, uh, they started printing the crudest, most vulgar and offensive things they could think of. For example, uh, one, th- one of the things I found that was printed in Denmark after the, the press was li- liberalised by uh, Struensee was a woodcut of a grave, his theoretical grave, with people and dogs busting grumpies beside it, which, you know, might not be the most highbrow political commentary, but he's still pretty bloody funny. They also just printed long strings of rude words in, uh, in, in newspaper articles, pamphlets, that sort of stuff. You know, piss, fart, willy, the king's a nutcase. This was stuff that was, you know, now printed because there was no, pa- you know, no palatial oversight anymore. It was fantastic. So absolutely brilliant. Struensee here, it invited people to express themselves freely, and that's exactly what they did. So I'm a big fan of that. The second thing, however, was a lot more somber. Very serious business here. And for Struensee, a lot more dangerous than a dog, you know, pinching out a turd on his grave. Because Struensee, he had his fair share of political enemies by this stage, and some of them very powerful indeed. Once the press was allowed to print whatever it wanted without interference, these people, they made their voices heard. The people that Struensee's reforms had affected the most negatively also happened to be, of course, the wealthiest people in the country. This, you know, this ruling elite, the aristocrats, the nobles, they were not happy with how things had uh, had ended up under under the the de facto regency of this upstart German, this grubby German commoner who'd come along and upset the apple cart, they were happy with how things were before this bloke had come and stuffed it all up from them for them. So they started to spend their money to make their voices heard. They started to distribute newspapers and leaflets and pamphlets. The newly uncensored press was the perfect vehicle for them to stir up anti-Struency sentiment. Reams and reams of paper were printed, criticising and denouncing Struency in order to turn public opinion against him. And unfortunately for Struency, this dedicated smear campaign ended up being very successful indeed. And what could he do? What could he do? He was he was living... Well, you know, they say the pen is mighty and the sword, and he wasn't living by the sword. He was living by the pen. You live by the pen and you die by the pen. And this is what happened here to Stroenzi. Spoilers alert. The papers printed, printed endless criticism of him. And it, look, in fairness, some of the criticism was perhaps warranted. They they accused... The papers accused him of, uh, of having no respect for Danish culture and or, or customs. And you know, this wasn't exactly an unfounded accusation because he couldn't even speak Danish. He insisted that all the court business was conducted in his native German. And on top of that, he purged countless public servants from government positions as part of his determined fight against nepotism. But then the replacements that were brought in were much less experienced or much less competent, really. And some of them were only employed because Strunzi knew that they'd be loyal to him, which was, you know, a new type of nepotism entirely. So some of the criticisms were, you know, at least they had a, a reasonable foundation. Some were a, a little more baseless. They included the way that, you know, he'd more or less deposed the king by sidelining him from political relevance, which you could argue, I suppose, he did, but also the king just wasn't, you know, mentally fit for the the, the task, the challenge of uh, of ruling a kingdom. 
Uh, nonetheless, this sidelining of their monarch, it, it had rubbed a, a lot of Danes the wrong way. I mentioned that, uh, you know, his, uh, his, his mental health issues obviously kept him from doing his job, but they were also hidden from the general public. Most people didn't know that he was struggling with, uh, you know, what, what they we thought at the time was just madness and insanity. Obviously, today we can be a little more sympathetic, a little more informed about how things actually were for this poor bloke. But uh, most of the Danish populace, they didn't know that Christian wasn't fit to rule, and so they were angered by the perceived marginalisation of their king. And in addition to this, let's not forget that the bloke was rooting the queen, which put a lot of people offside in its own right, you know, especially, especially in July 1771, when Caroline Matilda gave birth to her second child, a child who was said was to bear a very striking uh, physical resemblance to Stroinzi himself. There was a lot of angry speculation over who the father was, and you can probably guess the ending today. It's more or less accepted as fact that young Princess Louise Augusta was indeed the daughter of Struensee, although she was officially recognised, officially considered the daughter of Christian the Seventh, and, and and as a result, you know, inherited all the all the titles and the and the pomp and circumstance from her uh, her supposed father. There, anyway. Ultimately, the ultimate result of this liberalisation of the press, you know, quite apart from everything else, was the was was public opinion firmly turning against Struensee, who by the end of 1771, after you know a year of being in control of the kingdom, was still ploughing through reform after reform after reform. Bugger what the people are saying about him. He's still there forcing through these reforms, letting the Age of Enlightenment well and truly take hold in the kingdom of Denmark. Throughout this period, as the de facto, I might add, you know, while he was the de facto leader of Denmark, he, he issued over a thousand new orders. He showed no sign of, of slowing down whatsoever. However, it wasn't to last because in, in, uh, in 1772, in early 1772, it would all come to an end for our mate Johann Friedrich Strunzi. His downfall may have seemed sudden to him, but it had been bubbling and fermenting away under the surface for quite some time. After the birth of, uh, well, you know, who we can, what we consider to be his daughter, Louise Augusta, in October 1771, 10 months he's been in charge now, he gave himself the title of Count, which didn't go over so well with the general public, but in particular, it incensed the upper class. Not only has he cook-olded their king, they now hated the thought of this unwashed peasant rubbing shoulders as an equal amongst their ranks. So, as a result, a plot against Struensee began to take shape in a much more, uh, I, I guess, a much more practical and realistic way here. All of this dissent, all of this dissatisfaction with this bloke began to take a very, very deadly form because at its head was Juliana Maria of Brunswick Wolfenbüttel. Remember her? I asked you to remember her, so I hope you I hope you have. I mean, I don't ask much of you as a listener. There's no exams, there's no tests, but I did say remember her name. She was the stepmother of Christian VII, stepmother of the king, the second wife of his father, who sought to take power away not only from Stroenzi, but also from the king himself, so as to see instead herself and her son in charge of things. So to that end, the Queen Dowager, she pulled together willing conspirators and hatched a plot to take Struensee out of the picture altogether. Other nobles who supported, uh, who, who, you know, supported her, opposed Struensee for whatever reason, his liberal reforms maybe, his weakening of the aristocracy, or the fact that, you know, again, he was rooting the Queen, they all joined Juliana Maria's plot, which finally came a gutter 
in 1772, in January 1772. Long time in the running, long time, a lot, lot of planning, a lot of uh, back-end work here. But ultimately, on the 16th of January 1772, the Danish Royal Court held a masquerade ball, and this was chosen as the time to strike. In the early hours of the 17th, perhaps while they were sleeping off the booze, Struensee, Caroline Matilda, and some other Struensee loyalists were arrested. Now, these arrests apparently, they apparently took place in the name of the king. However, the fact, the fact of the matter was that Juliana Maria had forced her way into the king's chambers and scared, frightened and bullied Christian in his rooms into signing the arrest warrants for, uh, you know, again, people who he considered to be very close to him. Well, not his wife necessarily, but definitely Struancy anyway. And as a result... The Royal Guard, they kicked in the doors of the private chambers of Struensee and, and, uh, and Caroline Matilda and, and, and a few other people, and they took all of these people into custody. They, custody. they took them, they locked them up, chained Struensee to a pillar, and he was charged with, uh, oh dear, I forgot how to pronounce it. I even, I even looked it up and I've forgotten how to pronounce it. Uh, Les Majestés, the, it's, the, it's the French word that means offending the di- dignity of the sovereign. Uh, he was charged with having done this for having usurped the ro- uh, royal power. He was locked up, as I say. He was eventually tried, and despite his best efforts to defend himself, he was, of course, found guilty. He had flown in the face of the rich and the powerful to too great an extent to be able to hope to get away with it, and the people that he had spurned wasted no time in getting their own back. And these people portrayed Struensee's downfall as the liberation of the beloved King Christian VII, who was free now from the insidious influence of this common outsider. You know, not just like in the papers and that sort of thing either. They really took it to the next level. They put Christian in a golden carriage and drove him through the streets of Copenhagen. And as Monty Python might say, there was much rejoicing. It was a very clever PR move from the anti-Struensee camp who successfully stitched him up as an adulterous, traitorous usurper. Now, poor old Struensee, he remained imprisoned in Castellet, a fortress in Copenhagen, until the 28th of April in 1772. And on that date, the punishment with which he'd been sentenced was finally carried out. Now, you'll remember that he had abolished the the death penalty for theft But unfortunately, this didn't cover the theft of a kingdom or of a queen's fidelity, it seems, because tragically, Struensee was sentenced to lose his right hand and also, perhaps a little more tragically, his head. And so, after having his right hand cut off, it took three blows from an axe to finally sever Struensee's head and end his life. And his body was then disemboweled and quartered while his head was impaled on a spike and displayed to the 30,000 people who had flooded the streets to catch a glimpse of the whole grisly affair. But it wasn't just the execution of Struensee that uh, Juliana Maria had been carefully plotting. Other elements of the plot were running smoothly as well. She engineered a divorce between her stepson Christian and Caroline Matilda, who was then sent into exile, where sadly she died a few short years later at the age of 23. And now with very few obstacles between her and Christian VII, Juliana Maria finally had her turn to be thrust into a position of power. Between 1772 and 1784, she and her son Frederick, the half-brother of Christian VII, they became the de facto regents of Denmark, just as Struensee had been, although their politics were nowhere near as bravely forward-thinking. In fairness, his half-brother Frederick was definitely more liberal-minded than many at the time, but it wasn't this radical, revolutionary enlightenment thinking that Struensee had been so heavily influenced by. 
1784, however, this regency came to an end when Christian's son, also named Frederick, of course, took over as as a crown prince regent on behalf of his father. And finally, the troubled life of poor Christian VII ended on the 13th of March 1808, and his son became King Frederick VI. Christian was a long way removed from reality by the end, but he always seemed to harbour a deep sense of regret for what had happened to his friend Struensee. And in fact, today, this uh, you can still see the lasting impact, the lasting legacy that this, uh, this regret, perhaps even this guilt, had had on the adult mind of this poor man. Because in the Danish state archives, there is a drawing that Christian did of Struensee and one of his allies, who was also executed in April 1772, And on the drawing is written a short and absolutely heartbreaking phrase in German. Ich hätte gern beide gerettet. I would have liked to have saved them both. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Johann Friedrich Strunzi. And I realise that... uh, Despite, you know, talking a big game about always getting German pronunciation right, I stuffed up his name. So I changed so much throughout the entire podcast. But, you know, whatever. It's called half Ass History, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thanks so much for hanging out and listening to the show. We've got the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right here and right now. HalfHouseHistory.net, the website. You can use links there to subscribe to the show on uh, on iTunes, on Spotify, and Android. Play, please go and leave a review if you've got the time on uh, on iTunes for all of that algorithmic benefit that it brings me uh, you can also get in touch with the show just as Birke Uernsteher did uh, if you want to uh, send in a, a topic suggestion please do I've got a big long list of them so I can't guarantee I'll get to it but I'll do my best uh, you can also buy swag merch is available at the Half House History shop uh, bigcartel.com slash half history or is it uh, half history.bigcartel.com try them both one of them will work um, and of course, if you uh, are in, interested in, uh, you know, frittering away even more of your money for the benefit of this podcast, patreon.com slash history is the best place to do that. Uh, you can join all of the exalted Patreon members, patron supporters in, uh, in, in gaining a wide range of exclusive Patreon only benefits. Uh, the pledges start at as low as a dollar a month. If you want to chip in, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be very, very grateful, of course. Uh, and uh, I'm very thankful to all the people who, who uh, continue to do so. Anyway, we are going to wrap this show up. Uh, thanks again for listening and hanging out. We, I do hope to have your company once again next week. Going to close out the show with a question posed on Reddit, as, as usual. This one, uh, you know, we talked about the Enlightenment a fair bit today, and uh, Reddit historian Dr. Feargood has a question for us. What percentage of the population had to have lost weight for it to become known as the Age of Enlightenment? Enlightenment.